Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Norm Tebow, and uh, this is our monthly podcast. I'm uh, so grateful to have today a special guest, Dr. David Brzezinski. Um, David is a developmental clinical and forensic psychologist based in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. His research and scholarly writings have focused on psychological issues and adoption and foster care, stress and coping in children, non-traditional family life, sexual minority parenting and adoption, child custody issues, and children's cognitive development. He's published numerous articles, books, book chapters, and other writing on related topics. He's also lectured frequently to professionals and the public throughout the Americas and Europe. And I first became associated with Dr. Brzezinski uh, years ago when I was looking at, you know, formulating Three Point Center. And he, like many other uh, adoption experts, was very generous with his thoughts on creating a center strictly for adopted children. And uh, we're grateful for his research. And David, you might correct me on this, but in the research I've done on research, it appears to me that you probably more than anybody else have done more research on adopted children in residential treatment than anyone else, any other researcher. I, would you agree with that? Or is that your understanding? No, I think there are others. I mean, most of my research is not on children in residential settings. Some of it is. Uh, but, um, you know, there are others who've published probably more uh, with regard to residential settings. I, I think probably I'm one of the uh, more prolific researchers in the adoption field, certainly maybe not the most prolific, probably how Rodevant is. Uh, but, um, you know, I've been actively involved since the late 70s. That's wonderful. Well, we're, we're grateful for your work. I know I am. Um, when you were involved with the, uh, the Donaldson Adoption Institute uh, as, as the head researcher there, um, we're, all, we're all grateful for the work you've done and, and uh, informing the knowledge and working with adoptive families. So we're, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us, David. Um, well, let's let's jump into good. some things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your history with adoption? How did you become involved as, as a researcher and an adoption author? Well, I'll start by saying I'm not adopted. Um, in fact, um, I don't remember growing up knowing anyone who was adopted. So this doesn't um, come from an early connection uh, to the adoptive kinship system. Um, I was trained as a developmental clinical psychologist and started my career as a professor at Rutgers in 1974, and I continued there through 2006 for 32 years. And my early research was on cognitive development, children's understanding of X, Y, and Z, you know, you know about both the physical and the social world around them. And um, one day after teaching a large lecture, lecture class, uh, a woman approached me, um, told me that, that she was a parent. Uh, it was not your typical undergraduate. This was a, a woman in her 30s who had gone back to school, you know, to finish her uh, degree. And she said that she had a daughter who was uh, about five years old at the time was sharing information about her background, talking with her about adopted and adoption. And she said, well, you know, you're an expert in, in children's understanding of, of, of the world. What do you think they understand about adoption? I, it would be helpful. And I said, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, apparently, uh, as the story is told, uh, I was rather rude to her. Uh, but uh, not so rude that we didn't get married a number of years later. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, my current wife, um, you know, was in another marriage. I was in an, another marriage. But as things happen, sometimes marriages break apart. And ultimately, uh, Anne and I, who's an adoption expert in her own right, uh, got married. But the point is that she raised a question which I did not understand and didn't appreciate the significance of at the time. And in fact, I didn't think much about it right away. But um, perhaps four or five months later, I was asked by another undergraduate to um, support her honors research. Rutgers, uh, you know, seniors uh, who are in good academic standing have an opportunity to work with faculty and do an honors thesis. Lots of universities have that kind of model. And she approached me and I said, sure, I'll, I'll work with you. And I showed her some of the research I was been doing. And, and, and frankly, it wasn't uh, something that uh, she was interested in. Um, and then I had a meeting with her one day. And as we're talking, all of a sudden, 
the question that my wife, not at the time, but you know, currently my wife asked what do kids understand about being adopted? Just it popped into my head. I, I had no conscious recollection of thinking about that. And I said, yeah. you know, someone asked me an interesting question. What do kids understand about adoption? Do you have any connection to adoption? She said, yeah. She said, I have a couple of cousins who were adopted. I'm very close to them. And that would be a something interesting. So I sent her off to the library to do some library research to see what was, what was done. And she came back and said, I, I, I can find uh, information on the importance of telling kids about being adopted, if you will. That's the parent's job. Um, but I can't find anything on, on what kids understand, which is the child's job to understand the information being presented. And so on the, you know, following that conversation, we designed a, a very small kind of pilot study for her honors thesis and we uh, did it and um, you know, the data looked really well and it was my first publication with her uh, in adoption. And, and uh, I, 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 I realized that the work I had been doing, I was no longer interested in. I'm trained as a clinician and as a developmental researcher, but my previous research had very little clinical utility. A little practical importance. And I realized that this might be an area where I could make a contribution and it would also probably have a lot more um, practical and I will even say clinical import than the work I had been doing. And so I shifted my research into that area, applied for a federal grant, got it, and, and so began um, you know, uh, in-depth research that, that has continued to this time. Later on, a few years later, you know, I reconnected with uh, my wife, Anne, who started working with me. And, you know, at, at that point, uh, uh, eventually, uh, you know, she and I got married and she brought three biological children and one adopted child into my life. And I brought a biological child into her life. And, uh, uh, and she and I uh, have worked together uh, since the early 80s uh, in this uh, particular area. And we continue to do so, both as researchers, as writers, as, as clinicians. So I got involved first as a researcher, um, then, per, then as a, uh, a step parent to an, uh, an adopted child. And uh, my clinical practice shifted over towards working with uh, mostly with children from uh, who are adopted or uh, children in foster care, adoptive parents and families, birth parents, ultimately. My wife's dissertation was on the adjustment of birth parents. And so we both you know, became interested in working clinically uh, um, you know, and doing some research in that area. And we did. So that's how I got involved. Wow. That is fascinating. I love that story. Thank you, David. No you know, as, as, as you talk about birth parents, uh, you know, I understand you've been particularly focused on the meaning of searching for birth parents, maintaining contact with birth parents. Oftentimes, many of the parents that we work with uh, will struggle with understanding the connection with birth parents that our students might have, even when their child is adopted at birth. You know, there, there is a strong connection there. And can you, can you enlighten us a little bit on your research and what you found as far as the connection with birth parents? Well, let me start by emphasizing, you used the word searching before, and uh, uh, people often misunderstand what the term searching means. They think about it as, you know, looking for either information and or contact with birth parents, or frankly, birth parents looking for information about or contact with the child they, they placed for adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the end point of searching. But searching is first and foremost an intrapsychic process where and let's focus on children for the time being, adopted children, where once they know they're adopted, they begin to be curious uh, about where they came from, especially if they were placed as, as infants and, and have no memory of the time. Certainly kids from the foster care system will have memories if they're you know, old enough when they, you know, when they were removed. Uh, but it starts as, as a kind of intrapsychic uh, curiosity. Uh, you know, who was she? Who was he? You know, why did it happen? You know, what, you know, what was it like then? You know, can I meet them? And, you know, that, that translates all, usually into questions that are asked of parents. So it becomes a, not just an intrapsychic process, but an interpersonal process of communication. Um, you know, for some children, uh, that's enough. Uh, not everyone is interested in, in reaching out and searching for birth parents. Many are, but others are not. But for some children, uh, the need to make that connection is stronger and they'll want more information and perhaps they will want to try to make contact 
with their with their birth parents and of course if, if they have the support of their parents uh, then efforts can be made and uh, it's extremely common today for, for, particularly in infant placements for there to be some level of contact post-adoption in fact the majority of infant placements are um, on the realm of in the realm of open adoptions not that there's frequent contact but that there's an exchange of identifying information and um, some level of, of, of contact maybe with birth parents, maybe with extended birth family, maybe with birth siblings. It, it varies depending on case to case. And even in child welfare adoptions, uh, more and more of those are, are open. And we're even finding, um, because of the internet and social media, more efforts and more success in doing searching and international adoptions. Now you asked, why is that important? Well, you know, the search for self as the search for birth family really is the search for self. That's a universal experience. It's not, you know, something that is specific to adoptees. We all explore who we are. Um, and one of the things that adoptees come to understand is that they have, they have a connection to two set of families, those that created them and those that are raising them. And, the, you know, their curiosity is normal. It's natural. It's not pathology. It's not reflective uh, of, of a poor relationship with adoptive parents. It's just a natural, uh, uh, you know, set of, of it's a national curiosity and the questions are normal and that's one of the things we try to emphasize with parents that this is not about dissatisfaction typically with the uh, adoptive parents so, or uh, a desire to leave the family that's that's a rare experience um, not that they could as children of course but uh, you know it, it is about trying to find meaning in what has happened to them and sometimes it's, it, it, you know, as they get older, it becomes a, a process of, of repairing law, you know, repairing vulnerability. Uh, the loss associated with adoption, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, creates vulnerabilities and searching is one way of helping to, to heal that loss. Right, right. One of, one of, one of the, uh, I guess, variables that, that some researchers uh, subscribe to is the idea of a rescue fantasy in talking about birth families. And the way it's been explained to me is, you know, that, that many adopted children will hold on to the idea that somebody from the birth family, even if they're unknown, you know, will kind of swoop in and make everything okay again, even if it's not their, their birth parents. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's used to explain why many adopted children might keep their adoptive parents uh, at a distance or target adoptive mom, especially, and keep her at a distance. Uh, do you subscribe to that theory? Did your research back it up, David? And what are your thoughts about it? Well, I, I don't, I haven't done research on that, but in terms of it, as a clinician and as a trainer and as a consultant, I've heard about cases like this. I, I would uh, correct a term that you used, and that is many adopted uh, individuals experiences. Some do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some children who, um, for whatever reason, have had a, a poor relationship with their adoptive parents, who have not formed security in the relationship, a secure attachment, uh, which is a minority of, of uh, adoptive kids. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we'll, you know, wonder, would it, be, would it have been better had I been raised by my birth family? Maybe they will, you know, maybe I'll be able to, to um, you know, have contact with them and maybe go to live with them, or maybe they'll come and, and, and using your term, rescue me. You know, we have to be careful about generalizing from kids who are in clinical settings who express this, which is the vast minority of, of children who are adopted, yeah. versus, versus the, uh, the majority of adopted kids who form pretty good relationships with their families. Uh, the level of attachment uh, is generally secure, uh, barring, you know, a lot of adversity before the placement, which can compromise anyone's attachment. You know, infant place kids generally form about the same level of security. Uh, but of course, that depends upon the quality of parenting. And that, be, that starts with trying to understand, you know, the extent to which the adoptive parents' internal working models are, are reflect uh, security as well. Their own attachment history is, is really critical in understanding the kind of the quality of, of parenting that they'll uh, offer their children and their ability to support, understand and support the, the child's desire for information about or talking about or maybe even contact with you know, one or more members of the birth family. So I would say to you, yes, I've, I've 
experienced kids who've had fantasies of rescue, uh, it's, it's uh, not the norm. Very good. Well, and, and, and I think you highlight a great point, David, because the families we work with, obviously, are at a clinical level, right? And, sure. and one of the things we have to remember is that most adoptions are absolutely successful. And, exactly. you know, um, but for the kids we work with and for their parents, there's a lot of heartache involved as they try to navigate that. One of the things you touched on, I think it's really important, I'd like to dig in a little bit, is navigating their own attachment history. Um, because the research, there is a correlation there between the, the adjustment of an adopted child and an adoptive parent's attachment history themselves. Can you speak a little bit more to that? And, and I guess what counsel might we give our, our parents who are listening to this on exploring some of that themselves? What kind of questions should they ask themselves as they consider their own attachment history? Sure. Let, let me start by saying, you know, talk about that correlation. That's true, not just for adoptive families, but for all families. Parents who have, an, uh, who have a lot of unresolved losses in their history, um, leading to uh, kind of an insecure, uh, uh, you know, internal working model of relationships. In other words, you know, they are vulnerable in relationships. They don't feel as secure. They aren't as trusting and so forth. You know, it, they tend to create a, a more negative, uh, non-nurturing uh, environment for their children. So th that's a general pattern we find across all families. And it's true that we find it in adoptive families. Now, why might adoptive parents, um, I'm not gonna say be more vulnerable, but why do we focus in on this? Not just because of the general pattern that we see in families, but adoptive parents often um, you know, begin the process of parenting uh, in the face of, of a significant loss, and that is the loss of the ability to have a biological child. Infertility is not just a medical condition, it's a psychological trauma uh, for many uh, uh, parents. And the ability to uh, adjust to the infertility is critical, because if, if you can't deal with your own loss, um, if you can't integrate it in a way that doesn't make you unduly vulnerable. It's going to be hard for you to witness and support the child's expressions of loss. And, and loss and adoption is pretty pervasive. Maybe we'll talk more about that later. So um, one of the things we um, encourage uh, placement professionals, as well as clinicians who are working with adoptive families, when we are doing interviews of, of, of the parents, um, often this is done separately from the children, is to ask them about, you know, their own histories of, of loss or trauma uh, and, and how they've dealt with it over the years and how they feel it might be impacting uh, their life, not just in terms of their life with their child, but their life in general. Um, and, 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 you know, within a kind of a psychoeducative process, help them to understand that, um, Unresolved losses often create the conditions for, you know, in which a parent has difficulty meeting certain challenges uh, in parenting, including dealing with the frustrations and the loss of their children. Adopted kids are, are you know, are, you know, are, are unique in the, in the sense of having, you know, uh, have to deal with the loss of, of uh, an original family and, and many other losses as well. And as I said before, uh, for adoptive parents to be able to understand, validate, be empathic, create open communication, they, they have to be able to have integrated their own vulnerability in a way that, that the child's expressions of loss don't become triggers for them. Because when they do, you know, they're going to either minimize or dismiss what the child has to say, and they will not be able to support the child in, in, a, in, in an appropriate way. So they may need some counseling around this. They may need, you know, some of it's psychoeducational, but, but you know, in other ways, it's, it may be helping parents understand that, you know, you and or your partner need to talk a little bit more about how um, you're handling some of the issues from your own past and how it might um, impact, um, you know, the parenting process and, and your ability to be, uh, empathic and supportive of what the child is, has gone through and is going through. Thank you. You know, one of the things that we, we see quite a bit with the parents we work with, and, and it ties into what you're saying, is a sense of shame um, in their inability themselves to get, you know, to take care of the problems and to address the problems with their children uh, and in their families. Um, 
in, in such a way that they wouldn't have to resort to residential treatment or some other, you know, last or resort clinical measure. Sure. Sure. I mean, some of that shame is, is tied to probably unrealistic, <clears throat> not just um, their own vulnerabilities historically, but unrealistic expectations that they have about uh, being able to um, easily help children overcome the adversity that they experienced. One of, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, the idea that all these children need is, is love and, and good nutrition, as I think you said it before we started, uh, and, and that the child will, um, you know, be able to um, overcome, you know, the early adversity, the trauma, you know, the multiple placements, the losses, and so forth. And love is not enough, unfortunately. It's necessary, uh, but it's not enough. Uh, and parents need to understand that the early legacy, um, you know, understand the connection between between the early adverse legacy uh, of the child's uh, experiences and, you know, the, the symptomatology that has emerged over time. Um, you know, sometimes uh, parents just don't get it. And, uh, and you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's often very obvious to adoption professionals, but the parents themselves somehow feel that they should have been able to manage this This is particularly true when they previously parented other kids successfully. Mm-hmm. And yet, this particular child is not responding to their parenting efforts the way the other children have. And what's wrong with this child? Maybe they're, they're going to project the blame onto the child or what's wrong with me? Uh, As opposed to understanding that every child is unique and may require a different pattern of parenting in order to be able to um, feel comfortable, secure, and, and, and function in a, in a healthy way within, not only within the family, but beyond. David, you, you touched on something there that I want to I want to explore a little bit as well. You know, when we talk about the experiences that adopted children have. There are some who subscribe to Nancy Verrier's primal wound theory. Others kind of say, yeah, you know what, adoption in and of itself is not a traumatic event. Um, where do you stand in that? I, I don't view adoption as a traumatic event uh, because if it did, we would find the majority of children having. Um, serious problems. And that's not true. You know, the vast majority of adopted kids are well within the normal range of adjustment. Um, However, um, you know, certainly um, adoption um, carries with it uh, vulnerabilities by the, by its very nature. And the vulnerabilities are that, you know, you, you are connected to two families and for many children, um, you know, they don't know the, the history and they, and they're, they want to know it. They don't know who they're connected to. They, sometimes it's as simple as asking the question, who do I look like? I don't look like my mom and dad. You know, I look in the mirror and I don't see anyone reflected there that's living within my family. So it can be a variety of issues. Um, it might be, you know, to give you two examples from recent cases that I've worked with. In one case, you know, I have a child who has serious learning disabilities, which is you know, adopted kids are more at risk for learning problems, but living in a family of highly educated and very successful people who, um, who certainly wanted and expected their kid to do well in school, and he's not. Um, uh, so, you know, he feels like he doesn't fit in. On the other hand, uh, sometimes not fitting in is not about a negative quality, but, but something that is positive in a very unique way. And I'm, again, I'm working with an, uh, you know, a teenager, I, I, actually, I'm just at the end of it, a teenager who is really gifted uh, musically. Um, he uh, is going, probably going to go on to have a successful career. He's applying to, you know, uh, colleges now that are, you know, f- to, to study musicology and, and so forth. He lives with parents who, although they appreciate his gift, are kind of tone deaf. <laughs> um, yeah. They're not particularly interested in music per se. They attend his they're proud of him. There's no question about that. And he knows that they're proud. But his comment to me is, you know, it feels a little lonely not to be able to share this with my parents in a way, you know, that I would like to. They don't feel music the way I feel music. Um, and he wonders, I wonder if my birth parents had, had these, these, you know, uh, these uh, talents, you know, that my adoptive parents don't share. Wow. So, you know, um, I think we're off the question. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> it was more about the primal wound. But I oh, think- yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. So, I mean, I, I don't subscribe to the primal wound. Most of the, uh, I, certainly uh, children 
um, infants, let's go back to infants. Infants can recognize the difference, be, you know, even fairly soon after birth between uh, mother's smell and a non-mother's uh, smell and sound of mother's voice is more familiar to them than the voice of others. But that's, that doesn't reflect, um, and that it reflects the, the ability of the fetus to process information and to, you know, to gain meaning. And when the child is placed at birth with someone else, you know, perhaps there's an adjustment that has to, to occur, but it's not trauma in and of itself. Now, let's fast forward into the future. Um, and the child who's struggling with being adopted may reinterpret the process of placement in a way that, that really is disturbing to them. I'll even call it perhaps traumatic, but that's not true for, for most uh, adopted kids. What is traumatic um, you know, is certainly um, uh, being abused, uh, being neglected, uh, you know, uh, being moved from home to home to home. Um, those are all uh, living in an orphanage. Um, you know, these are all, you know, trauma-based uh, experiences that follow the child's birth. I'd also say that on a physiological level, what's traumatic is, is prenatal exposure to high levels of stress, prenatal exposure to drugs and alcohol, you know, which um, in many cases we, we will find in the birth parents of, uh, of adoptees. So there can be some prenatal trauma, uh, but that is more on the physiological level, which might impact information processing and emotion regulation. But it's not about adopt Those ch children would be traumatized by those conditions, even if they stayed in the birth family. Right. Well said. So, so as you're indicating, a number of the kids that we work with, uh, unfortunately, were, were abused um, as infants, as toddlers, what have you. And for a number of our adoptive parents, they struggle with the idea of how do I explain this to my child? How do I how do I explain to them what happened? And, you know, we talk about trying to keep things in a positive light for their kids. That's a challenge. And, and, and sometimes, you know, our parents have come at us and said, you know, how do you, you want me to almost defend what this person did? And no, that's not it. What we want you to be able to explain what happened, but then do it in a way that you're trying to present a positive as light as possible. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit, David? Sure, sure. And I, I, I agree with you that there is, you know, it's not that we soft pedal what happened to the child. It's not that we promote lies per se. Um, but I do um, subscribe to a, a very clear distinction between parental intent versus parental action. Um, I've not met any, I wor I've worked with a lot of abusive parents over the years. I've never met anyone who prior to the birth of the child had a desire to hurt their child. Um, you know, they, they, these parents, you know, generally want to be good parents. They want to help their kids, but then something gets in the way. Maybe it's drug addiction, alcoholism, maybe it's mental health issues, maybe it's exposure to domestic violence, which creates conditions in which they are unable to follow through with the kind of parenting that they, on some level, recognize the child needs. So it's important to make that distinction between, you know, I, I would make it in the following way. I would say, you know, and maybe this is a little bit of a white lie. I'll acknowledge that. Uh, but it's a kind of white lie I think uh, I'm very comfortable with. And I would say something along, you know, your mom, your birth mom, um, you know, yes, a lot of things happened that were very difficult for you. But parents, and I'm sure your birth mom, wanted to be a good parent, wanted to do right by you. But she had an illness. It was called drug addiction. And when she got you know, involved with drugs, she was unable to think rationally about what you needed. She was unable to put your needs ahead of her need to get, you know, to use drugs. And that got in the way. Um, and as a result, she often went out, left you alone. Uh, sometimes she didn't, you know, take care of you the way she, she should have, even when she was there. Uh, at times, perhaps, you know, she lost control and, and, and did things that were hurtful to you. You know, and, and that was, you know, and that's not, um, you know, that's not right. You know, and, and so your birth mom has to be responsible for that. But the reason that she wasn't able to do it was not because she wanted to but because of, of the inability to, to make good decisions when she was either, again, 
The scenario might be when she was using alcohol, when she was using drugs, or because of something, you know, like a mental illness. Um, so we talk about, you know, we, we try to put um, the birth parent in a light where there's a distinction being made between the desire and the act. Um, also, many of these kids, you know, can remember, uh, we have to, let me rephrase it. We have to remember that abusive parents and neglectful parents are not abusive and neglectful all the time. Um, they take their kids out to the park, they buy them ice cream, they watch TV, they play games with them. And then, of course, something happens and they beat the hell out of the kid or they just leave the child alone in the house while they go out looking for drugs or getting, going to the bar and getting drunk. All of that, of course, is, is not uncommon and it's obviously inappropriate. Um, but, um, you know, children have to understand that, uh, and children do recognize sometimes that there were other times that they remember that weren't difficult. It, it's one of the reasons why we find kids in the foster care system who often, even though they've been abused by parents, you know, and they formed a, a, an attachment to those birth parents, it's not a secure attachment, but they awful, often want to go back to what is familiar to them. They want to go back home, even though they, the attachment they have is probably a traumatic attachment. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I'm of the opinion that we need to tell children, you know, and talk with children about the truth. Uh, we have to find ways of, of reframing what's happened to them in, in a way that does not unduly denigrate birth parents. Uh, we, we can use a disease model. Your mom you know, had an illness. Your dad had an illness. We can use, you know, a model in which parents, you know, have some kind of either emotional or cognitive disorder that doesn't allow them to think through you know, what they, what they want to do for the child and the way that keeps the child safe. Um, it certainly doesn't take the sting out of everything the child's experienced, but it is a way, excuse me, <clears throat> it is a way, I think, of approaching the question that you're asking um, and, and helping parents to uh, know that, that one, it is important that they talk to their children about what has happened. It's important to process these difficult experiences, these trauma experiences with their child, and to create an environment where the child knows it's, it's okay to share this information and that mom and dad can hear it. Um, and, and in a way that, you know, they also recognize that mom and dad are not trying to um, unduly, uh, no, I'm going to say blame, blame parents. Yes, blame is, 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 is appropriate in certain circumstances, but you know, I don't use the word blame. It's more about responsibility. They have to be responsible for what they did. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, David, are there any circumstances that you would consider a birth family connection for an adopted child uh, be contraindicated? Sure. Um, if children have been traumatized by parents, birth parents, and the conditions are still in place, such a, an active drug or alcohol user, the parents you know, living in, in uh, uh, homes where there's still ongoing domestic violence, uh, untreated or unsuccessfully treated serious mental illness that makes it difficult to be with the child in a way that uh, supports the child's uh, mental health and, and supports the adoptive placement, then uh, that's contra that, con <clears throat> that is a contraindication for contact. Now, let me qualify something. <clears throat> People change. So uh, an abusive parent may, or even a parent who's a drug, has a history of drug abuse, may have gotten their act together, uh, may have changed in a way that they can uh, have contact with the adoptive family in a way that supports the child and supports the placement. So we always have to understand that even though there's been a, a very adverse history, there is a possibility of change and we have to look for that change. On the other hand, as parents, we have to uh, also, first and foremost, uh, protect the children and make sure that if and when 
I'm sorry, if, if the change hasn't occurred, then contact isn't in place. If it hasn't occurred enough and, and uh, contact begins and yet the parent is still making promises that are confusing the child, like as soon as I get better, I'm gonna bring you home, um, you know, and it can confuse a child who doesn't yeah. necessarily understand the legality of adoption placement. Um, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have to stop the contact or at least put it on hold until we can work with the birth parent to be um, more appropriate. The second caveat I would offer is <clears throat> let's think about contact with birth family, not just in terms of birth parents, but others who the child either has memories of or who are, capable of being with the child in a way that will help the child to understand his history and who the birth family are and that can still support uh, the adoptive placement. So it might be grandparents, and uncles and aunts, cousins. It might be birth siblings who are in other placements. So um, when we're thinking about opening up a previously closed adoption, uh, don't just look at how the birth parents are doing. Let's ask ourselves who else could protect uh, perhaps be a support for a child who could help us as, as a family, uh, help our child understand his background, and uh, who can, you know, help to support the emerging identity, which will include uh, the struggle of trying to integrate birth family uh, information with adoptive family information. There are, there are a number of our parents, David, that worry on the other side of this argument that if connection is made with the birth family, uh, their child will want to move, live with them, move out, uh, you know, uh, because they, they they have this passion to be with them. How yeah. how might you respond to that concern? Well, I, I <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I think, remember, of course, you're working with a population that probably inherently has a lot of history of parent-child conflicts. That's one of the reasons why the kids probably need to be in a residential placement for a while. Exactly, uh, yeah. Okay, so you know, one, one can understand the concerns of parents. Um, I think there's a couple of things that um, I would I recommend. First of all, when contact is being um, contemplated, I think it's important for the adults to make contact first so that the adoptive parents can understand what are the motives, what are the capabilities, what are, you know, what is the family or the, the person like that, that perhaps they're trying to incorporate into a, a, a pattern of contact with the, with the child and, and the adoptive family? And about setting rules, you know, um, adoptive parents have to, be, have to empower themselves to, to be able to say, you know, first and foremost, I am the person who is in charge of my child, both legally, morally, emotionally, cognitively, in every way. Okay, um, and I'm going to make decisions in terms of the child's well-being, and you know the possibility of contact can be explored, but it should be explored first between the part between the adults, uh, if it's at all possible. Obviously, sometimes uh, birth parents using the internet can make contact with kids, or kids make contact with birth parents, unbeknownst to the adoptive parents. But let's put that aside. We maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, so, you know, you get to know the parents, you get to, you set the, the ground rules, you, you find out what their motives are, what they're looking for. And you, you know, as parents, you give the, uh, the birth parents or the, or the birth relatives some idea of what the child's needs are, who they are, what they're looking for. Um, and once you're comfortable enough to, uh, to move forward, of course, uh, then some contact with the child, of course, can be, the, you know, um, can be um, uh, developed. You know, I think you know, parents need to be clear with the child, you know, that, uh, you know, that having contact is not about going back to live with your birth family. Uh, you may, you know, you know, that's not what this is about. Uh, it's not uh, possible. Um, and it's something that, you know, we've already talked with your birth family about, that that's not going to happen. Um, it, but that doesn't mean you you know you can't have ongoing contact. Now you know sometimes um, of course once the child is beyond the teenage years, um, you know sometimes they do go back to birth family, especially when there is a history of serious conflict. Uh, we find you know when when adoptions disrupt, um, um, you know 
I don't, I don't mean that in the legal sense. Um, I mean that just in terms of children running away, uh, temporarily disrupt, uh, you, know, uh, you know, by going into a residential placement and so forth, you know, and, and the reunification of the child into the, the adoptive family is not particularly successful. I've seen a few uh, teenagers, you know, you know, go back to their birth family and try to maintain contact there. Some successfully, others not or children who run away, you know, or perhaps become emancipated, you know, after either before 18, you know, legally or after 18, you know, they, they sometimes, uh, you know, want to go back. And again, you know, it's not a solution to their problems, <laughs> um, but they may not understand that. Right, right. You, you, you touched on social media. That is something that uh, we, we're seeing has impacted a number of birth family, adoptive family relationships, because it seems that the kids are sometimes going behind their parents' back, their adoptive parents' back, and reaching out and making contact with the birth family. Yeah. What, what have you seen about that, David, and any counsel for families who have had to deal with that? Well, uh, the first step that, parent, both, uh, that adoptive parents usually take is trying to restrict access to screen time. Not going to be successful if you're talking about a teenager. Um, he's going to be at his friend's house. He's going to be elsewhere. He's going to have access if in fact he wants it. So trying to just impose very strict rules about no access, you know, um, is inevitably going to, uh, to fail. It is about uh, talking with your kid and being open uh, about the child's curiosity. It is about, um, you know, letting them know that, you know, you're, you're very interested in what, is, what he or she is thinking about once and, and being able to even say, look, sometimes, you know, people are able to, able to find uh, relatives um, on the Internet and relatives sometimes are able to find uh, children that are no longer part of their family. Um, you know, it's important that that ever happens, you know, to you that you let me know. I, I want to be able to help you. I want to be able to foster a relationship if it's, if it's a good relationship for you. But I also want to ensure that, you know, good judgments are being made uh, both by you um, and, uh, you know, inappropriate promises are not being offered uh, by uh, others who you're talking to. And it is a matter of, of protection and it's a matter of, uh, you know, uh, you know, concern and, and, and love and support for you as, as, as my child. So I think it's important that this communication begins early in terms of, of it's part of, you know, the communication that, that parents should be having about how do you use social media? How do you use access to the world, you know, the <laughs> the web, which, you know, kids are accessing all kinds of things, porn, you know, other inappropriate kinds of sites. And, you know, this, it's part of a broader discussion about the internet. And, and certainly it's, it has complicated um, adoption issues, both positively and negatively. I mean, uh, positively, uh, it's, um, you know, people are finding one another, you know, when they want to, even in my own family. I've had uh, uh, two of my cousins uh, be contacted by half-siblings who were born to a, a relative before they were married and placed for adoption. And so now we have uh, uh, in our own family people who were found through, uh, I believe one was 23andMe and one was, uh, what's the other one, Ancestry. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, it turned out to be a very positive thing for my, my cousins in the family. But, you know, sometimes it, you know, problems can occur, too. Yeah. Interesting you, you mentioned that. I, uh, just before Christmas, was contacted by a woman who reached out and said, I've done a DNA test. My father was adopted. I've done a DNA test. And you and your brother are very close matches. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were all taken a little taken back by that. I was shocked. And, and uh, long story short, turns out my uncle Johnny, who was stationed in Germany, who since deceased in the 1950s, uh, fathered this uh, young woman's father. That's what that's that's my cousin's story. My uncle was stationed in he was a career uh, military person stationed in Germany in the 50s. And he wasn't married then. And um, had a relationship uh, with a woman. Uh, uh, she gave German woman. She gave birth, unbeknownst to my uncle. Uh, yeah, same the, here. Yeah, and placed the child for adoption, and it was the child was adopted by an American couple, actually. So you know, people are 
finding out all kinds of things. And, uh, um, you know, there, like, like many things in life, there are positive and negative aspects to this new technology. Indeed. Indeed. It's not well, new anymore. <laughs> the family keeps growing. Heck, David, you and I might be related. Are we might. <laughs> By the time we get to the end of this. So um, switching gears just a little bit. We have kids who, who turn 18 in the program, choose to stay, what have you. Age 18 seems to be a significant number for parents and, and adopted kids at times. Um, from your research, uh, are there any significant shifts in parent-child relationships in adoptive families that might be different than non-adoptive families when you have someone turn 18? Well, for most families, it's pretty much the same process, but there are some unique issues in adoption that, that affect some families. Obviously, um, once a child is of a legal age, um, you know, he can do that which he wants to do. Uh, you know, when a child reaches a certain age, whether it's 18 or a few years later and is moving beyond the family, uh, either going to college or moving out on his own, you know, a lot of people, um, particularly, uh, you know, in the past, and I'll make that distinction, I'll talk about that in a second, you know, who, who never searched before, once they're free of the day-to-day -day, uh, influence of their adopted parents, are, you know, begin the process of searching um, that they did not do before because they either didn't have the support or they felt that they would be hurting their adopted parents' feelings. So that, that sense of freedom uh, often is, um, you know, from, um, you know, from, you know I'll say freeze the child to begin the search. Um, on the other hand, um, I've seen other kids who are adopted who um, are very vulnerable about leaving the family. Um, you know, they they don't have a, a level of security or self confidence of being able to 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 make it on their own. So certainly true for non adopted kids as well. But you know, so I don't want to overgeneralize. But you know, my my client population is mostly adopted and foster kids, so I, I want to be careful not to overgeneralize. But I've, I've worked with a lot of kids who seemed to do pretty well in high school and then got to college and on their own and just had difficulty managing their life. And uh, this um, process of uh, growing independence, uh, struggling with uh, the ability to, to deal with the world on their own made a lot of, made them, you know, um, uncomfortable and vulnerable. Sure. For adoptive parents, of course, um, you know, I think they, they some, particularly those who have not been able to um, talk openly about with their children, about their teens, about adoption issues, you know, I think they, they sometimes worry about, you know, their kids' uh, emancipation and what will the child do and will they seek out the birth family uh, privately and, and not involve us. Uh, you know, that's, that's more likely to happen when there's a history of parent-child conflict. But, you know, um, it, it's, it's a, you know, this, this transition from late adolescence into young adulthood, uh, you know, is, um, you know, can be complicated for all families. And it certainly can complicate the developing sense of, of self, the identity process, which is, you know, is, is not just restricted to the, you know, the adolescent years. In fact, it's not, you know, it begins in childhood, you know, but, you know, the adolescent period is a more concentrated time of when children are struggling with who they are. And the adult period is now an extension of that. Um, and uh, it can be challenging for those who have not resolved a lot of the uh, adoption issues that they uh, have thought about over the years or have not resolved conflicts they had with their adoptive parents. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you mentioned you work uh, frequently with uh, children in foster care. Yeah. There's some disturbing trends with foster care outcomes, especially for multiple placements. Yeah. Um, on, on planet, David, how do we improve foster care outcomes for these kids? Well, let's start with uh, really improved services for those birth parents in need. Um, the services that they receive are, are, are neither timely nor are they particularly uh, good services. Um, I, I think, you know, 
this is an extraordinarily complicated issue. It's not just about, it's about changing society. It's about making uh, available to families in need, vulnerable families, the kinds of services that they, uh, that they require so that their family doesn't break apart due to all kinds of conditions. You know, that's, that's the larger issue. And in, in, in Planet David, that would be taken care of. But in, in, in Planet Earth, you know, it, it's a huge <laughs> political issue and economic issue. Um, but, but certainly, I think um, we need to be able to alter the, um, the foster care system. Um, right now, um, we have much too often uh, children experiencing multiple placements. I'm sure that in your population, as in mine, it would not be uncommon for a teenager who was adopted from foster care to have had four or five or six more placements. I've had kids eight or nine years of age who've had, who've had a double, uh, you know, um, uh, ten or twelve placements. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I call it, I call it systemic trauma, trauma yeah. by, you know, at the hands of the system. Um, and of course, the caseworkers and the and the people in charge know that this is not good for children. It's it's just that the system is not adequately developed or funded to be able to provide good training for foster parents, good you know, and and, and preventive mental health for children, um, and. Um, and, you know, so we, we find foster parents, you know, um, you know, being uh, in, sometimes just as inappropriate with kids as, as a biological parent would be. You know, there's a lot of neglect and abuse that goes on in foster care. And that's one of the reasons why kids get moved, uh, because there's been a CPS report against a foster parent. It's confirmed and the child has to move on. Uh, another, I think, important change. Um, you know, we have concurrent planning in our systems now. And for those listeners who don't know that term, uh, it involves um, when a child is, is placed into foster care, typically for the first time, but not always. And there is reason to believe that the birth family um, is high risk for not being able to return to the, the, the birth family, that the child be prepared not just for return, but for adoption, and, and that the families uh, are, are, you know, get the kind of training and preparation that would allow for a quicker placement into a permanency situation if the child cannot be returned. Some of that also involves more contact between uh, the foster parents and the birth family. Uh, those birth family who are capable of, of uh, reasonable contact. Uh, in part, I think, you know, one of the reasons why I think that's important is, um, let's look at it in two different ways. If a child is going to be returned, in order to, for that reunification with the birth family to be successful, the, adopt, the birth parents have to really understand who the child is, their needs, and so forth. Who better to help uh, the birth family understand what the child has experienced over the last couple of years and what they need than the f foster family who's been caring for them. On the other hand, you know, uh, let's look at it uh, from the other side. Who better to help the, the birth family understand, uh, I'm sorry, who better to help the foster family or the pre-adoptive family to help uh, them understand um, the history of the child and, and what has gone on and who are some of the key people in a child's life than uh, some of the birth family members who know this child well. Now, right. of course, you know, we're talking about uh, situations in which, you know, contact is possible, you know, you know where um, the birth family members, whether they be birth parents or grandparents or uncles and aunts are, you know, in a place where they can work with the foster parents in a way that supports the child's well-being and they're not constantly in conflict with them, which sometimes, of course, happens, often happens. Right, right. There's much, much we need to do for these children, such a vulnerable population. And, and unfortunately, by the time that they're placed into stable homes, um, there's, there's already so much there that needs help. Uh, so many of these kids are behind the eight ball and their adoptive parents from the get-go. Very, very unfortunate. Um, as we wrap up, David, uh, what are some positive trends you're seeing in the treatment of adoptive families? 
Well, uh, the probably one of the most important trends I'm seeing is a growing emphasis on the need for clinicians uh, to be adoption clinically competent. And, and I've been writing about this and I've been involved with uh, a couple of organizations. I mean, when I was at Rutgers, uh, I worked with the social work department to develop one of the first training uh, programs for helping uh, child welfare as well as mental health people to understand the unique issues involved in adoption. More recently, I've been working with the Center for Adoption Support and Education. It's called CASE, which is the acronym. Debbie Riley is the, um, uh, the head of it. And they have developed uh, some really wonderful uh, curricula for um, both for um, in-classroom training, uh, as well as online training uh, geared towards both child welfare and mental health professionals to understand some of the unique issues involved in the life of adopted children and the family and the birth parents too. Um, you know, being clinically competent doesn't mean you're adoption clinically competent, but being adoption clinically competent um, is, is based first of all on clinical competence, but then being able to understand the unique issue. So you look at your case, you look at your assessment, you look at your treatment planning through a, a broad lens, but also a lens that uh, includes um, adoption issues. Most professionals in the field have almost no uh, training, specific training in adoption. Uh, and that's because um, adoption is a, a small part of the clinical population. It's overrepresented in clinical settings, we all know that. We know it's overrepresented both in outpatient and in inpatient and residential treatment centers. Um, but you know, most kids who are, are being treated are not adopted kids. And, and you know, the training programs, uh, including the one that I was involved with at Rutgers, you know, might make might, might make some mention about. Uh, you know, what I'll call non-traditional families and some of the strengths and vulnerabilities of those families, but there's really no concerted uh, training uh, to understand it. There are a bunch of, of, of postdoctoral training programs around this, around the country, probably now about 14 or 15 of them. They usually offer anywhere from, oh, 45, 48 hours up to close to 100 hours of training. Uh, right. Um, and, uh, it's a start, um, you know, and uh, CASE, of course, has probably the majority of, of those programs. They have multiple sites. I think now they're up to 13 different sites around the country. Um, there are other programs as well. Uh, Kinship Center up in Oregon, there's a good program. and Rutgers has a program as well. Um, so that is one of the most important trends, I think, um, helping clinicians, both those who work in outpatient, those like yourself and your staff that work more inpatient to understand uh, how to target adoption issues um, alongside other issues that may be of relevance. Obviously, one of the, we, we, as adoption professionals, you know, if we make errors, it's sometimes looking uh, too closely at the child through only the lens of adoption uh, and missing other parts. But if the majority of clinicians out there, their, their bias is that they, you know, they don't have an adoption lens, so they miss a lot of the adoption issues. And it's one of the reasons why kids have gone through many treatments that have failed and they end up in, in settings like yours. Right. One of, one, of the, one of the things that I'm passionate about, I, I agree with you, and it was uh, the work you did with the Adopt, Donaldson Adoption Institute, you know, citing from, from their seminal work, A Need to Know, you guys uh, addressed the idea that adoptive families, less than 25% of adoptive families found that uh, their clinicians were adoption competent. My own right. belief is that stems from the fact that I don't believe you know, the DSM and these other, uh, you know, clinical publications have, have adequately conceptualized what these, many of these children go through, um, such as, uh, you know, complex developmental trauma. And I believe in order to get clinicians trained appropriately, we have to have a diagnosis that fits these kids. I think you're right. Um, and, and certainly complex uh, trauma, uh, developmental uh, trauma, which, you know, they, they, they're working on, they're trying to get it into the next uh, DSM, uh, you, know, um, you know, system. 
Um, there is a, a, a growing literature, though, even though it's not a formal diagnosis, there is a growing literature, as you well know, Norm, on developmental trauma and yeah. complex trauma, complex grief, you know, too, uh, um, that um, isn't adequately reflected in the diagnostic manual, but it's, it's out there. But, but for more and more clinicians to be trained at the graduate level, um, you know, the graduate training generally follows the diagnostic categories, you know, that are in the DSM. Um, I think you're right. It'll have to eventually get into that, um, into that system. Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic it will, you know, through the, through the yeah. great work of, of researchers such as yourself. Um, David, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your time today. There's so much more we could go into. And, and uh, with your permission, we'd like to have you on as a guest in a few months. Let's do it again. There's plenty of other questions. And I'd ask, I'd ask our adoptive parents who are listening, if you have questions you'd like for me to pose to David, we could have them back on again and, and explore some other topics. He's a, he's a, wealth, of, a wealth of information. And again, David, on, on behalf of, of people who benefit from your research, thank you. Thank you for the work you've done uh, and contributing to this body of knowledge. Thank you for having me, Norm. Thanks so much. And uh, uh, we uh, will do this again next month, you guys. Thanks uh, to, our, to our parents at Three Point Center for listening in. And, and please reach out with any topics or questions you'd like for us to address. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.